The Cat and Cloud Coffee Podcast is sponsored by Steeped Coffee. Steeped Coffee is a new brewing method that combines specialty craft coffee into a single serving bag. You don't need a machine. You don't have to make a mess. All you have to do is add hot water wherever you go. Each steep pack is individually sealed. It's nitrogen flush, so it stays fresh. And it's got this special full immersion filter. And the filter is ultrasonic sealed, which means it's sealed together with no glue or no staples. So there's no weird stuff floating around your coffee. Steeped is a benefit B Corp. They ethically source all their coffee. Their packaging is fully compostable and they believe that business should be done without compromise. You can get your hands on steeped coffee packs at steepedcoffee.com. That's S-T-E-E-P-E-D coffee.com. Asking your local retail stores to start carrying steeped or having your favorite roastery reach out and kind of get in touch. If you're in Santa Cruz, come on by any of the Cat and Cloud locations. We have it there for you. Basically, they're just doing their best to change the coffee industry, make your life more convenient with their pre-portioned, pre-ground innovation. So tell all your friends. Good day. Good day. Good day. Good day. Good day. What's cracking, everybody? Welcome to the Cat and Cloud Podcast. It's Chris Baca here, all by himself, all by his lonesome. I'm I'm out here on the picnic table behind work. I've got sunglasses on. I've got my hood on. I feel like a suspicious, a really, really suspicious character. It's not it's not a good it's not a good look. Jared's getting ready to go to Honduras. He leaves today to go visit our boy Damian Chavez. Go hang out with Benjamin, go see Anna Rosa, the whole squad. It's going to be thick and it's going to be really, really, I mean, I'm kind of sad that I'm missing out, but also not sad because sometimes I travel really well, sometimes I don't. Hey, there's Jared. Jared, come say goodbye to everybody. Hey, everybody. I'll see you next time. Listen to this guy. He knows his stuff. (laughs) Straight from the horse's mouth, an endorsement of a champion. I got it right there. If you also want to listen to more of me and my jabber jaw, make sure you check out the Ground Up Show. That's the podcast that Matt Diavella hosts. Matt Diavella is the guy who directed the Netflix documentary Minimalism. He's a super talented filmmaker, has an amazing YouTube channel, and had me on his podcast. And you can listen to it in podcast form at the Ground Up Show. You can listen to it in video format if you want to watch me, blah, blah, blah. There will be links in the show notes. Links in the description Links everywhere. Link up, dude. Are we going to link up or what? So what I have today for you is this epic monologue of Instagram questions. So everybody who wrote in, thank you so much. I'm going to answer these in kind of like a uh, maybe rapid fire, maybe quick questions, long answers. I don't know. We're going to see how it goes. And I might not be able to answer everybody's, but I'll pick some of my favorites and we're just going to roll there. We're going to roll. And if these lead to more questions, you can just write in. So excuse the brevity, but I'm just, I'm just fucking, I'm just fucking on one, on one. Let's get it going. First question is, what do you want to hear about? Skate stuff. Dude, I don't know what to tell you. You should definitely skate every day. It'll make your life better. Next, Supply for All asks, how to tell stories or convey a message as someone who doesn't feel it's natural or easy. So there are some people who are natural-born storytellers and love being in that position. They feel really comfortable talking to people, feel really comfortable breaking stuff down. And for some of us who are maybe a little bit more shy or a little bit more introverted, it doesn't really come as easily. But just like anything else, it is a skill. So it is something that you have to work at. It's something that you need to practice. So there are some, there are some tips that I use when I'm preparing for presentations or getting ready for stuff that seem to help. Number one, make, make some sort of bullet points. Don't need to write the whole thing out 
every time, but you definitely need to have a track. If you're doing a big keynote, almost like a TED kind of speech, I would write the whole thing out because those things are really, really scripted if you want to get massive bang for your buck, but definitely have some sort of roadmap for where you're going. The second thing is practice in whatever you're going to wear when you're telling story. So if telling story, telling stories, telling stories, i.e., if you're telling a story or doing a presentation at a big event and you know you're going to wear a suit, which is different than your day-to-day wear, I would recommend doing some dress rehearsals in said clothing, just so you get in the zone, get comfy. The easiest thing that you can do when you're practicing telling stories is record them and listen back at them. It's hard to be in the listener's perspective when you're the one that's telling the story. So if you record them, you listen to them, and you can get into that zone, that's really, really, really helpful. And don't get discouraged if your first storytelling attempts or attempts to break down a complex idea and make it simple, don't get discouraged if those don't work right away because those are hard. Those are hard skills to master and they take time. So really what you're looking for is improvement over time. Get on a schedule, get it going. That's a really that's a really good question. Storytelling is one of the most powerful things we have, whether you're talking from a marketing perspective, branding perspective, or just sharing what's super valuable to you. So getting in that zone of being able to tell stories is amazing. So give it a practice. Next question. How do you choose to talk about specialty coffee shops that you don't enjoy or haven't enjoyed? Hmm. You just don't, just don't, just don't talk about them. Don't t- it, it's, it's easy to talk crap. It really is or give a negative review, but I'm always thinking what is, what good is going to come out of giving either a bad recommendation, talking a little bit of shit, or even just simply saying that you don't enjoy it. And usually there's no positive benefit to saying that. So it's better just maybe not say anything at all instead of being like, Oh, I went to Bailey's coffee shop and Bailey pulled me the wackest espresso ever. Bailey, uh, come here for a sec. I usually don't go. I just don't go. Um, I try to look at every opportunity, um, as positively as I can and as objectively as possible. Um, I try not to judge beforehand too hard. I just go with an open mind and you never know. Yeah. Maybe the coffee shop's known for being whack for various reasons, whether it's the coffee quality itself or the guest experience or maybe just some sketchy ass coffee show. Who knows? So I just, I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm here. Let's try it. Let's see what's going on. And I usually get at, you know, maybe best on average, like a C minus C, C plus shot maybe. And yeah. Good knowledge, bro. Super sick knowledge. I second what you said, Bailey, about just not going. I'm not really big into leaving reviews, negative or otherwise. And I think the biggest way that you can vote for the businesses that you want to see succeed or the world that you want to live in is by voting with your dollars. So if someone's not making the mark, you don't have to talk shit about them, but you also don't have to go get their coffee either. And yeah, that's, that's where I'm going. Isaiah asks a really awesome question. Why did Cat and Cloud go with 10-ounce bags as opposed to 12-ounce bags? Super awesome question. So the reason we went with a 10-ounce bag is we wanted something that would give people coffee. If they're going to drink a cup of coffee, it needed to last at least a week. 
But we also had another goal, which was lowering the price point a little bit so that people could get out of the coffee shop with a bag of coffee and a beverage for under 20 bucks. So 12 ounce coffees, 12 ounce bags, if you're pushing into some of the nicer coffees or some people do the one pound bags, it's it's just a lot of money. So to go into the coffee shop, buy a bag of coffee and get a latte or a cappuccino and come out with a ticket that's like 26 bucks or 25 bucks, it just felt a little bit more unapproachable. So we went with 10 as the compromise. There's some people who feel like, oh, you, you know, you're trying to trick people because you're throwing it out there as if it's a 12 ounce bag and people think they're getting value for money. For us, it's not about value for money. It's about the, the whole package. So lasting a week and being able to get out of there, beverage and a bag for under 20 bucks. We'll see what happens when inflation hits and the price of everything goes up and minimum wage keeps going up. And yeah, dude, whatever. That's going to suck. Michael asks, getting your name out in the industry with or without social media. Okay. So if you want to get your name out in the industry, I guess the first thing I would ask is why do you want to get your name out in the industry? Is it just to have your name out or are you working towards a bigger cause? And identifying whatever bigger cause you're working towards is going to help shape what channels you go through to get your name out there. Now, I don't think I'm an expert in this field, but there's a lot of different mindsets on it. There's the Gary V mindset to where he's just like, more is better. And if you listen to his videos on how he built wine library and how he built his social connections, he's like, I spent 12 hours a day on Twitter, searching for hashtags, connecting with people and just commenting on people's posts. Now, that might work. He's kind of a master of social media. I fucking don't want to do that. That sounds like the fucking worst way I could ever spend my day. I, it's just disgusting to me. And not, I'm not hating on anybody that does that. It works for some people. It totally doesn't work for me. So I think identifying the thing that works for you is the key. There's the whole opposite approach, which is kind of like, I guess you could call it the minimalism or the intentionalism approach. So if you read things like deep work or digital minimalism, Cal Newport's newer book, he takes the opposite stance and that in this supercharged, um, what do you call it? Just like the, the economy or, or everyone's attention span is basically fucking fractured. Everyone's on devices all the time. There's so much content. There's so much noise out there. His argument is the people who have the ability to focus and create work that's meaningful are going to be the ones who are driving the economy forward. And this is more the approach that I take, which is creating things that matter and letting that drive everything. So the biggest driver for me personally in the stuff that I do is my YouTube channel and Instagram's kind of like a reflection of the channel, but I don't want to spend all day making Instagram posts. I would rather make videos because those videos are going to be more helpful, help more people get more quote unquote value. I hate saying that out there, but just doing things that matter. And if you see, uh, if you see trends, trends going like this, I think, I think this is the thing that's going to win out in the long run. So you can't go in it with the attitude of, I just want to get my name out there. I think you go at it was what feels good to me. What's a place where I can help other people out, share some of my stories and, and let that go. So 
just to recap on the whole situation, Cal Newport, who wrote those two books that I just mentioned, look in the fucking links to find the fucking link to the book, the description link thingy. You get what I'm saying? He has never and still does not have any social media. He doesn't answer email. If you want to get a hold of him, you have to go through his publisher. Yet he's written multiple best-selling books, is booked out on speaking arrangements all the time, and has created a career for himself without the use of social media. So depending on how you want to do it, just kind of, you know, just kind of make it your own. Foible wants to hear about Grindcore. Wow. I might have to bring Bailey back in on that one for, for a second. We'll, we'll see. You want to talk about Grindcore for a second? 30 seconds on Grindcore from the mayor of San Jose, Howard Millworm. Oh, geez. Um, Grindcore, 30 seconds. That's already, you know, twice, three times as long as some of the best Grindcore songs of all time. Blast beats, heavy nihilism, brutal hatred, agony, despair. That's Grindcore. Michael Foy, I hope that works out. I hope that works out for you. Better Coffee at Home wants more espresso icons like Kent Baki. Ask Kent Baki to be on the podcast. He said yes. We're going to set it up. We're going to go to Seattle and talk to him. So thank you for asking about that. I really want to get that going on. Good question here. Wastage over quality or the other way around? I don't think the things are mutually exclusive. I think you can make quality coffee and still have minimal waste. There is the exception of you are going to have increased waste if you're in a heavy training period, if you just hired a bunch of people, you're showing them how to make espresso, how to brew coffee, you're obviously going to have more waste byproducts than you would otherwise. But I think managing waste needs to be something that's built into your workflow and you need to look at your quality control systems and see if to consistently get really good coffee, I consistently have to waste a ton of coffee, something is wrong with your training program. There's a miss there. There's, there's some sort of disconnect and you need to figure out what that miss is. And instead of focusing on waste or quality, figure out what am I not nailing in training that'll allow people to understand what's happening so we can make a consistent quality with no waste. There, there are some things that are just going to happen that you just can't get around, um, and we have to swallow those. For example, if you have two grinders and one of them is a single origin, and you haven't made the single origin for 30 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever, you're going to need to purge that grinder, get rid of some coffee so that you're not serving old, stale coffee. You just, you just have to do it. It's, it's going down and that the cost of that is relatively small. I think what you're probably asking about is recurring themes. So check the training program. They can both coexist and make it, you know, make it your own pre-ground Bailey wants pre-ground coffee. Don't pre-ground coffee. I don't care what anybody says. It's dude, geez, pre-ground coffee. Bailey says pre-ground coffee is the new grind core. All right. Logan asks, apprenticeship, the concept of health in the industry, or things you look for in hiring? Okay, cool. So when we're looking at hiring, we're looking for a cultural fit for the organization. We're not looking at skill. Skill-based hiring is a trap that a lot of people fall into thinking, oh, if this person's a really good barista, they're probably going to be a really good fit for my cafe. And that is not the case. Making espresso is relatively simple. 
you need to retrain anybody that you hire anyway, just because they've made espresso or made coffee in some other context doesn't mean they're going to make good coffee in your context. So the idea that you're saving yourself some training money is, is a fallacy. More importantly, you're looking for, does this person believe what I believe? Do they fit in to the organization? So how you can approach that, there's a bunch of different ways. If you listen to the podcast in any meaningful way before, you probably know that we're huge champions of having your mission, vision, and value statement dialed in. If you don't have those things, get to crafting those because that will help inform what you really believe. And and it's a process. If it doesn't come super easily, that's totally fine. Spend the time with your business partners or if it's just you, spend the time with your significant other, get your friend group together and really hash those things out. Because if you can surround yourself with people who at the core, at the end of the day, believe in the same stuff that you do, the training is going to be a breeze and you're going to end up with this really wonderful eclectic, diverse group of people that are interesting, but all are playing for the same team. And that's a really, that's a really fun thing, fun thing to have to bear witness to, you know what I'm saying? Uh, apprenticeships. I don't know how apprenticeships work. I've never taken part in one. I've never had one. I don't know how internships work. It's for us or for me specifically, I, I must say I've, Never had any kind of unpaid intern because I feel like if I'm giving to someone too much that's outside the organization, there's an opportunity cost there, which is I'm probably ignoring someone who is inside my organization. The caveat is the people in your organization need to be ready to learn. There are, you know, people need to step up and be like, hey, I want to I want to learn. I want to do those things. I want to do the stuff. I want to do all the stuff. Oh, my gosh. I lost my whole train of thought here. Actually, that's a lie. I didn't lose my whole train of thought. My phone just auto locked. I am back. How do you take risks? What did you stand to lose or gain? How did you learn from failure? (sighs) Dude, how do you take risks? Uh, What did you stand to lose or gain? Uh, Lose anything and nothing. So when we decided to stop working for other people and start working for ourselves, the most glaring things that we stood to lose were that financial security because for Jared and myself at that time, we were both making more than we'd ever made before. Life wasn't particularly challenging in that we could go to work, do what we needed to do, come home, and there was never any question of whether we could pay rent or not or whether we can go you know, take a little bit of spare money and go get something to eat or go get a drink. It wasn't a big deal. So the biggest thing is that financial insecurity. And depending on what level of your life you're in, the byproducts of that are a little bit different. Even weighing the two for Jared and myself, for me, it was me and my wife and my wife had a job that provided a little bit more security for me financially. Although we did go through a period where uh, yeah, you would be shocked at how small our W2 was because, well, we'll unpack that later. Jared has kids and it, uh, kids are, it's a different, it's a different situation. I don't know what it feels like, but I do know that there's just a little bit less flexibility there. And on the other side of the question, what do you stand to gain? What we standed, 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 what we standed to gain, what we stood to gain was really some sort of freedom, freedom in being able to pursue the things that we believed in, the world that we wanted to see, the way we thought business could be done. 
And those things at the end of the day outweighed the frightening, just terrifying fear of cool. Maybe this isn't going to work out. Maybe this is all going to explode in our face. And then really worst case scenario, if you're in the U S you're kind of, you're, you're back to square zero, which hopefully you're not, you know, out on the streets or anything, but for most of us living in really well-developed countries, let's say the whole thing blows up in your face. You can worst case scenario, go get a job somewhere, which I, in the little interim, when things were falling apart for a minute in another business that I had, I actually had a job interview at Whole Foods, got hired to work behind the meat counter. And I was like, cool, I'm going to work at Whole Foods. And then the day I had to start, I called them and said, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And <laughs> I, um, hopefully you for, hopefully if you forgive me. So it's all about how much risk can you manage and how, how gnarly the thing is that you believe in. What's the biggest, what's the gap there between that vision of the perfect world that you want to see and where you're at right now. Okay. Daniel asks when you felt fear of inadequacy or failure opening a biz. Oh, what did you do to overcome it? All right. So it's kind of a tag on to the same question. I was really lucky and that I had partners. So Jared and Charles were really, really helpful the whole way because we never, we never had that feeling of feeling alone. I can't imagine what it feels like to do something like this all by yourself and to have some sort of built in support group where you can just come to people who are understanding your struggle, speak openly about it, talk about the things that are scaring the shit out of you, talk about the things that you want to do, but you're afraid they won't work. That is a huge asset. I would advocate for someone who doesn't have those partners to really, really build that social support group. I put up a video recently about being friends with the people who work for you. And I think building that support group is something that's important to do, even if you're not a business owner, but let's say you're a manager or a team lead, someone in any kind of position of power, because anytime you move up into those managerial roles, it creates a little bit of separation between you and your employee. It doesn't mean you can't have good relationships with your employees. It doesn't mean you can't be friends with your employees, but there are certain things that you can't share all the time. So it's important to build a support group that's a safe place for you to share those things with other people. And that, that helps in just like so many, so many ways. The other thing is... That idea of fear, the fear never goes away. The fear is always there. In The Third Door, Alex Benayan talks about the difference between fear and courage and how some of these greatest entrepreneurs that we know of, they all had one thing in common, which is they were all terrified about what they were doing. They felt incredible fear, but they also had the courage to push through it. So if you're waiting for the moment when fear no longer exists, unless you're some sort of super person, I don't think that ever comes. Whenever we try something new and we're trying, we're trying some new things. Now we're going to try some new things with some of the new cafes that are opening up and diving into food programs and things that we've never done. And we feel confident that they're going to work, but there's also a level of fear. That's like, Hey, we know coffee really, really, really well. We've never had a restaurant before. We've never run a food program before. And those are real things that go on in our mind. So just don't let the fear own you, you, own the fear. 
cup tasters prep practice. Jeez, I have no freaking idea. Never competed in cup tasters. I'd probably say cup a lot. How are you doing, broski? Dude, I'm doing pretty good today. I kind of feel, uh, I feel like I got a lot of energy right now. Calavera slash Evan says, what's up with that new Lamar Zoko machine? He's referring to the KB90, the Kent Baki 90. I mean, it's a machine, dude. You can check the video out. I'll put a link to it below. For those that don't know, the biggest feature of the machine is it's got the straight in portafilter. So there's no bayonet mount on the portafilter. You basically thumb trigger this thing, which drops like a piece of the group head down and you can slide the portafilter straight in and straight out and straight in and straight out. And there it is. It makes coffee. It's got a couple other cool doodads with it. If you're in the market for a new machine, it's definitely worth looking at. If you already have something like a Strata that's got scales and if you've got a robust, you like that word? Robust? Motherfucking robust. If you got a robust professional machine, it might not be worth upgrading just because a machine is a huge investment in cash flow. And you have to look, you know, if you're going to spend 20,000 bucks, you got to be honest with yourself and say, what else can that cash flow do for my business? Do I want to tie it up in a new machine? Even if I can sell my other one for, I don't know, 10, which what's the mental energy like of dealing with selling a machine? So check the vid. It's uh, it's cool. It's a cool machine. I love that La Marzocco keeps playing forward with new, new innovations. I think that's something that's going to put them or continue to keep them in the front running of espresso machine shenanigans. Roddy wants to know if I had a time machine, would I rather travel back in time and change the change decisions or travel ahead and see how decisions today pan out? Jeez. Uh, neither. Both of those would probably make me super, super paranoid and I would probably never be able to sleep again and I would be scared for the rest of my life. I've kind of accepted the fact that a lot of the decisions that I've made and I'm going to continue to make are going to be bad decisions. And as long as I'm learning from them, I can kind of deal with that. I don't need to be like stressing out about everything. I'm a fucking head case already. So it's almost like the less I know, the better. Oh, look at this one. How do I feel about every roaster offering offering similar read identical subscription programs? <laughs> yeah, here's the thing about subscription programs is they are what they sound like they are, which is people send you coffee in the mail. Like there's nothing too different about anybody's subs- subscription program at the end of the day that's like, oh, I really want that one. Sure, some people have some trinkets that they include in there, some enticing things, and we do some some gifts for our subscription-only customers um, from time to time, something that shows appreci- appreciation because subscription programs are a big part of most people's online businesses, and it's a huge part of our web-based business. It's kind of like our number one thing. It's our number one stunner. So we really value those customers. But at the end of the day, I think if you're thinking about buying a subscription program, what you really want to think about is assuming you know that the quality of coffee is at least there, you're thinking about whose company do I want to support? Who's got a value system that I resonate with? Because it is a big commitment to give someone money every week, every two weeks, every month. It's like money, 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 money. All this money is money that you worked for, you spent your hard-earned time for. 
and you could do anything you want with it. And that's the, that's kind of like the power of money. So when people choose to spend it with us, I like to think that they're making that decision one, because the coffee meets some minimum quality standard, which we take huge pride in our coffee, but we're not blind to the fact that there aren't other good quality roasters out there. There just are. There's, there's a decent amount of quality coffee out there. So we like to think that people are buying into our subscription program because they're supporting what we believe. So I don't really have a problem with people offering the same subscription program because that's what subscriptions are. But I would love, I would love to see a more compelling reason to do business with people than the fucking bullshit oversold story of we source and roast the best beans from around the world and we fucking pay direct trade and a blah, blah, blah with a blah, blah, blah. And I really, really hate that marketing platform. It feels exploitive to me. I don't like it when I see pictures of coffee farmers most of the time because I've been in the industry too long and I don't know if I necessarily trust a lot of people's intentions. I don't really know what's going on there. And and I think instead of trying to sell on the back of someone else, we need to take responsibility for our own business and our own storytelling platforms and really give our consumers here in the, the country of consumption some sort of reason to buy into what we're doing. You can tell how I, how I feel about that. I, I feel very strong, strongly, strongly about it. And yes, if you look at if you look at our Instagram, you will see a couple, not a lot, of, of pictures of farmers. You'll see Damien Chavez. You'll see the people we visited in Hondo and Ben Hameen. And those are people that we feel confident that we have enough of a relationship with that we can share their stories without exploiting them and needing them to sell their coffee. Because we think, here's the real talk, we could never, never show a picture of origin again, and it wouldn't affect our sales. So, so there next question, it would be perfect. If you share your thoughts about barista competitions one more time, who God, wow. Really, um, yikes really come in, really come in with the heat. So barista competitions take a lot of work, a lot of preparation and anybody who spends the time to do them hats off to you. And it, it's really, it really comes down to what they mean to you. So I can tell you what they mean to me and what they meant to me at the time that I was doing them. So when we were doing competitions a lot, the competitions were really this big hotbed of coffee knowledge. There wasn't as much social sharing. There just weren't as many social platforms as there are now. So to get knowledge about certain industries, especially ones that were really, really niche, you kind of had to go to events. You had to go to meetups. You had to go to the source. And barista competitions were one of those big things. So as much as competing, it was the chance to be around other baristas, share some knowledge, and, and just get that, that energy charge where you couldn't, you couldn't get anywhere else. This, it's hard to overstate how much of a mystery most of this stuff was. Also at that time, barista competitions were directly driving innovations in barista technology. So a lot of the things that we have now, like doserless grinders, scales becoming really, really common. All of those things are just formed out of people wanting to do 
better and better and better in competitions. I remember the first dosos grinder I saw, I was just like, what the fuck? Because people wanted to manage their waste for competition. And that competitive environment created, it, it created this zone where people just wanted to push each other forward. And it's awesome. It's awesome that we have those things, but that, that social situation, that context doesn't revolve around the competition anymore, strictly because there's more ways to engage with the barista community. There's more social sharing. There's a lot of different platforms that people can share ideas on. And that's kind of taken, not taken over, but really, really taken a big bite out of what barista competitions can offer to the community. So I, I have no interest in doing competition anymore for a completely different reason, which was because the competitions had a different value system than the value system I had. So they consistently were not rewarding the things that I thought were amazing about our industry. They weren't consistently picking the best baristas or the best representatives for our culture. That And I, I don't mean that to slam anybody that's ever won or done well, because I'm certainly in that category and I, I know how much work it takes and I know how much, how much intentionality it takes and how many sleepless nights and how hard it was to like pick your coffee and all this stuff. But it just wasn't reinforcing the things that I love and the things that I love. I love the fucking grassroots barista movement. I love the person who gets up in the morning, opens the bar, works at a shop in the middle of fucking nowhere and is continuing to work in coffee only because they love it and not because they have a training lab and they get to buy $100 a pound green coffee for competition or this and this and that. And I'm just like, dude, I don't, I don't fucking care. Like the shit really, shit really wasn't matching up for me. I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I didn't know what to do. Oh, also. Oh, hi, Belle. Come on back. How are you? Good, how are you? Would you like to say anything? I was just declined. I was just declined an interview. Man, how does it feel to be me? It feels terrible. What was I talking about, Bill? One more thing about barista competitions, which actually has nothing to do with the structure of competitions and everything to do with how companies use competitions is the trend is to send the same people to competition over and over and over and over and over again. And I get it because I've been there, but looking back on it, I'm a little bit disappointed in myself and the companies that I worked for, for that this is the approach that we took. Because here's the thing, if you've done a barista competition a couple times, and especially if you've done well in these competitions, the more competitions you're doing, you have marginal learning. There's marginal improvement there for you going through that process of competing, training, the whole situation. But if you take someone who's never done a competition before, has totally like brand new to the whole situation, and you put them in that position, they're going to learn exponentially more than you will doing it for your third, fourth, fifth time. Now, the problem is the brand new people are kind of less likely to win. So if you're using competition as a big marketing situation for your company, then there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a conflict here. You kind of want the show pony, but I'm like, dude, fuck that. Like get more people who work for you get them through that experience, use that to develop them as the baristas. Because here's the thing, the more people you can put through, uh, the more people that you can get in a situation like that, the better. Sure. You're cool. We get it. Everybody thinks you're fucking cool. You got the trophies. That's fucking rad, but there's only one of you, you know, and if you go back every year and you're competing, there's still only one of you. I would rather take 
10 people send two people every year for the next five years. Let them fucking fail. Let them get dead last. It doesn't matter. That's going to affect my business in a more positive way than me going and getting on the podium five times in a row. And that's just, you know, something to think about, something to think about. And obviously this is coming from a motherfucker who loves to hear himself talk. I mean, I'm on a podcast by myself. How much more narcissistic does it get? Bell's loving it right now. I think that's bringing us to the end of our rope. Thank you to everyone who wrote in Instagram questions. Sorry if I didn't get to yours. If more come throughout the day, I'm just going to put them in the next podcast because, you know, I don't, I don't know when Jared's going to come back. He keeps leaving me over and over again. It's just this, it's just this one-sided relationship. I'm doing all the work here, Jer. Where are you at? Gallivanting around the world with coffee farmers? Great. Me and Belle are here just taking notes, trying to make your life easier. Anyway, this is the Cat and Cloud podcast. We love you. I hope you love us. Have the best day. And, you know, just fucking stay dialed, dude. Peace. The Cat and Cloud Coffee Podcast is brought to you by Wilbur Curtis. They make coffee brewers. Ever heard of them? If you haven't, you should. They're an awesome family-owned company. They're here in California. They power their facility with solar power, which I hear that's like a new hot thing that progressive people do. The best thing about Curtis, in my humble opinion, is the turnaround time on the Brewers. They have a 24-hour turnaround. It's phenomenal. If you've ever ordered a Brewer for a wholesale client from someone else and waited and waited and waited for it to come in, you know how frustrating that is. So being able to get the Brewer next day like that is absolutely amazing. Shout out to you, Wilbur Curtis. Their customer service is phenomenal, and they just care. They care about you. They care about me and I care about them. And that's why Cat Cloud Podcast is brought to you by Wilbur Curtis.